Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books and Political Science um, podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm joined by Deborah Thompson, who will talk to us about her new book, The Schematic State, Race, Transnationalism, and the Politics of the Census. This book was originally published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. It has recently come out in 2018 in paperback. The book itself takes the reader through a variety of discussions and then analyses of this idea of the census itself, um, the role of race and understanding what the census does, um, and also three case studies um, that Deborah will explain to us as we discuss the schematic state. So I'd like to introduce Deborah Thompson and welcome her to the New Books in Political Science podcast. Hi, thanks for having me and helping me to fulfill my lifelong dream of being on a podcast. You are on a podcast. Yay. I'm a vast consumer <laughs> of podcasts, so I'm finally on one. I've made it. All right. Um, Deborah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project? Sure. So I am currently an associate professor of political science at the University of Oregon. I study race, the state, and racial inequality in comparative context. Um, The book was published while I was still at Northwestern University in the Department of African American Studies. Um, And, you know, I don't have a really good origin story for the book. Like, I wasn't misclassified by the census and it ruined my life. Um, Oh, well. (laughs) I know, alas, I'd be a terrible superhero. Um, What I was originally interested in was the role of the state in making and manipulating racial boundaries. And the interest actually came out of a job that I had before I started my PhD uh, when I was a a policy and a legal analyst at Indian and Northern Affairs Canada. Now, Aboriginal policy in Canada has this really long and complicated and terrible history in which the state has created definitions of who could and couldn't claim Indian status. And it had dire consequences for people's lives, right, for their understandings of themselves, for their for their ability to access their communities, their homes and even material resources like housing and healthcare. And as I became more familiar with the scholarship on race and ethnic politics, I saw a lot of similarities between the way that uh, Canada has worked to define Indian status and the ways the American state had defined racial boundaries, you know, sometimes explicitly uh, like in miscegenation laws or state constitutions, and sometimes in more administrative ways like uh, on birth certificates or passports. Um, and the thing that struck me initially was how inconsistent these rules were. You know, we talk a lot about the historic use of the one drop rule to determine who was black in the U.S. during Jim Crow. But it wasn't actually the case that the one drop rule was applied, 
you know, consistently over all time in all places. Um, you know, some state constitutions said a black person was someone with, quote, one quarter black blood. Some constitutions said it was one eighth. You know, in Virginia, uh, the, the legislature defined whiteness as the absence of non-white blood, but also included a clause that exempted people who could trace their ancestry back to Pocahontas, you know, um, in, and of course, Ian Hanny Lopez and Ariella Gross have, have these really great books that detail how the courts have been involved in defining the boundaries of race and specifically the boundaries of whiteness. And for me, it was interesting because we think about race as something that's fairly fixed. Um, and yet the state derived rules that rule race were incredibly inconsistent and also sometimes contradictory. So the question that drew me initially to this research was, you know, why, you know, why does the state involve itself in making and manipulating racial boundaries at all. We, we can imagine a world where racial identities exist kind of beyond the business of the state. So why in places like Canada and the U.S. and Great Britain do we see these efforts to, to place and solidify racial boundaries? Um, and what do these race-making efforts tell us about the nature of race and its relationship with the state? And the census actually just seemed like a really good way of getting at these questions that I was interested in. Um, and the opening line of the book is that, you know, the, the census seems innocuous. Um, and it does, right? On the surface, the census is really boring. It's mundane. Um, it's just another government form that we fill file and quickly forget. But there's so much conceptual work that the census does. It is used to produce lines, you know, charts, graphs, tables, it represents life in numerical form, but itself, it's an administrative and social grid. And in, in the census itself gives us the impression of order, you know, so it, maybe it reminds us of Foucault's concept of governmentality, but everything has to fit in the boxes that are decided by the state. Um, the census recognizes individuals, but only selectively. The state wants to know about us, but only those characteristics that make us governable. Um, and non-recognition can even be important, right? Silence always holds meaning. Um, and the classifications that are promoted by the census always end up being kind of insufficient to capture the power of race. And Laura Stoller once wrote that the fixity of categories can never really contain the fluidity of their content. So we have these circumstances where people see the categories that are promoted by the census and say, like, I don't see myself in, in these labels. I don't see myself fitting into the schematic. You know, can we make adjustments so that I feel included, so that I really belong to this thing that is supposed to represent the nation? Um, more importantly, the census is, as we know, highly political. It's linked to the two basic functions of government, which are representation and redistribution uh, at stake in census count counts is essentially $880 billion a year in federal funding. Uh, the census also creates national imaginaries. It determines which people belong and how they can, they can um, identify uh, in particular ways and see themselves as part of the nation. Um, and as a lot of people have written, you know, most notably Melissa Nobles's excellent book, um, Shades of Citizenship, the census is this integral part of a country's racial order. Um, it gives racial boundaries this veneer of administrative legitimacy, and it creates powerful feedback incentives for social groups to adopt the identities that are promoted by the census in order to converse with the state. So the census is really important. It gets to the questions that I was interested in. And it also gets at this, I think, central tension of democratic societies, which is that our ideas of uh, within liberal democracies about equality and citizenship demand that the characteristics we use to distinguish supposedly distinct races don't matter, right? The, the self-evident truth of the liberal ideal is that we are all created equal and should be treated as, as such. But we have these societies that are also still plagued by massive racial inequalities. So the paradox is that on the one hand, counting by race runs contrary to the norms of liberal democracies. But on the other hand, counting by race is the only way we have of ascertaining the extent of racial disadvantage and hopefully eradicating it. 
And that, I mean, and that's really where I find your book and your thesis so fascinating and draws the reader in, as you say, to this sort of, you know, this this um, tool, this policy tool that we often don't think about. It only happens every 10 years. And it's about counting, right? Like, yeah. here I am. I live in the United States. I'm a citizen. Count me. Um, and, and in past census forms, I've had to fill out how many toilets I have in my house. Um, sure. but very important. <laughs> very important, exactly. Um, and, but at the same time, as you note, so expansively and analytically s- sort of valuable, valuably in your book is that this question of the historical context over 200 years in the United States, um, and in your other case studies that the, the understanding of who's being counted and how they're being counted is really important to understand. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's also the power of the state. So I wanted to ask you, before we go into the historical question, if I can ask you just to lay out the three case studies that you're looking at in the book and why those three. Sure. So um, the cases that I look at are uh, the United States, Canada, and Great Britain. Um, and as you said, I look at them over a, a very expansive period of time, you know, from the very first censuses um, in the, the late 1700s until um, the most recent census round in, in 2010, um, 2011. Um, and historians hate that. They, they think it's ridiculous that the, the periodization is so large. Um, and the reason why I chose those cases is because there's actually a really interesting kind of puzzle, um, both theoretical and, and, and empirical. So first of all, the, the practice of racial counting has shifted over time in different ways within each case, right? So in the U.S., there's always been a question on race or color in every census since 1790. Um, and the census featured these fluctuating racial categories alongside staples of black and white uh, that stabilized after 1930 and then were standardized in 1977. And the next major shift came in the year 2000 when the census allowed respondents to mark more than one racial category. In Canada, there was a question on race on all the pre-Confederation, and Confederation happened in 1867 in Canada for people who don't know. Um, So there was a question on race in all the pre-Confederation censuses and the censuses um, up until 1941. And then in 1951, uh, the terminology of race was abandoned and replaced with ethnicity. And then in 1996, um, the Canadian government put a newly redesigned question to measure the, the visible minority population on the census alongside its ethnicity question. And in Great Britain, there were several failed attempts to put a question on the census um, from the 1960s and through to the 1980s. And then the first ethnic question was introduced in 1991 and it was reformatted for the 2001 census. So there's like interesting kind of um, variation within each case over time. And then there's interesting comparative puzzles across time, right? So the U.S., and Canada counted by race in the 19th and early 20th centuries, but Great Britain didn't. After World War II, the U.S. continues to count by race, but Canada abandons uh, its terminology and Great Britain tries to put a new question on and fails. And in the 1990s, all three countries have these new-ish questions on race. And by the year 2000, all three countries have made efforts to count the mixed race population uh, in new ways, but they chose different ways of doing so. So Canada and the United States uh, employ a mark one or more approach, while Great Britain has these um, single response options under the heading mix. So people just actually check a box according to which, quote, mix they are. Um, And, you know, the cases work in part because um, explorations of census politics in the United States, and there there are quite a few, usually identify a number of drivers over time. But in recent decades, um, it's been the effort of groups that lobby to be included on the census or to change the way that they're classified. Um, So again, Melissa Nobles, Kim Williams, and others talk about, for example, the mixed race lobby that worked in the 1990s to change the way the U.S. census counts multiracial people. 
Um, but there's no social mobilization around these issues in Great Britain or Canada. Um, in fact, at times, racial minorities have mobilized against being counted for fear of what the state would do with that information. And white majorities have also mobilized against racial counting because they view it as being highly divisive. And so the explanation of standard kind of accounts of census politics that are dominant in the U.S. just really didn't hold in comparative context. So I was interested in finding out, you know, why that is and if we could come up with an explanation that it would be a little bit more generalizable. And so from that sort of interesting distinctions between the the three countries and their approach to sort of counting on the basis of race, you also talk about, as you already mentioned, the fact that the definition of race in the historical context has morphed in lots of ways. Um, and this is a, you know, a real key point that you sort of are making with regard to the fact that we think about race as a more static kind of classification, but that ultimately when we're talking about it in this classification manner, that it has changed and evolved and switched around. Can you talk a little bit about that in context of the book? Sure. So, you know, the, the big argument that I make in the book, I make a number of arguments, but one of them is that we need to pay attention to um, what I call kind of macro level racial worldviews and the ways that those have changed over time and how they get um, filtered into domestic policymaking arenas. And I can talk more about that uh, in, in a minute. But if we're thinking about the our ideas of race, you know, what is race? Um, those ideas have changed pretty substantially over time. You know, in the 18th, 19th, early 20th century, some people still believe in it, but um, we, we largely did believe that race was biological, right? It was a biological essence. Um, race, therefore, in, you know, was carried through one's blood and it was immutable and, 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 and fixed and unchangeable um, and biologically determinative, right? So it wasn't just that race was biological, but that your biology determined your potential, your morality, your behavior, your temperament, um, and that idea of race, I say it's dominant, but there have always been people, of course, who have challenged it. Um, but that the dominance of that idea of race really began to crumble after the Second World War. And we see uh, international organizations like the UN and U UNESCO um, come out with these statements um, that that detail why race itself was a dangerous concept and why it should be replaced with other kind of, of signifiers. Like, and this is where we see the emergence of ethnicity as a paradigm, essentially. Um, and so in after World War II, the idea of race as biological really starts to come apart. We see it replaced with different paradigms. Um, and there's a large kind of consensus between like the 60s and the 80s that race is a social construct, right? We, we made it. Um, race matters only insofar as we continue to invest morphology with meaning, in effect. Um, and I trace the ways in which our different understandings of race end up changing racial taxonomies and classification rules on the census. Because if you think race is inherently biological, or if you think race is something that we created, it was a social construct, those have different implications for how census questions are developed and how we think about um, people's ability to identify themselves, right? And so the shift from race as biological to race as, as social, a social construct, um, what follows in census politics is the idea that your racial identity is best left up to self-identification, right? And this is part of the reason why um, as technology developed and census forms um, um, changed and people began to fill out their own census forms. Um, it wasn't just like an enumerator standing at the door looking at you and trying to determine what race you are. Uh, instead, you get a census form and you get to choose, you know, which race you identify with. That's a pretty substantial shift. And that's an interesting in terms of understanding how the census also works. As you say, we, the people, are the ones now taking the census as opposed to somebody knocking on your door and asking you questions. 
Sure. Well, people still <laughs> knock on doors, you know, to, to deal with all those people who don't right. fill in their senses. But, you know, the, the, how we identify in terms of, of the race question is self-reported. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and and as you note uh, the the three case studies have also moved forward with having options that include mixed race of different varieties yeah um, which again is you know where people are saying you know i don't fit into the boxes you have given me as you note in your in your um research um so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the idea of the state itself. Your book is titled The Schematic State. Um, and you talk about the fact that the census and the question of race in the census has to also do with the projects of the state itself um, as sort of one understanding of why this is something to pay attention to and and think about and you know sort of move forward in terms of understanding policy and the concepts of race and the state um, can you talk a little bit about how the sort of racial projects of the state as you talk about them in the book um, sort of figure into this analysis sure so um let me back sure. up a little bit because, the, you know, the main argument of my book is that there are these two sets of transnational forces, which end up being highly influential in census politics. And the first is, as I said, our macro level understandings of, of the nature of race um, and racial difference. Um, the second transnational factor are these more meso level programmatic beliefs of the international statistical community about whether or not racial statistics are a viable or problematic policy instrument. Um, but there are also those two kind of transnational factors interact with other domestic factors that matter, like that help determine the national nuances that we see. And so the first type of domestic institution that matters, as you said, is racial projects of the state that operate alongside the census. And here, you know, I draw from Omi and Winant, as lots of people do. Um, and I talk about the ways that racial projects of the state, you know, they have their own causes and internal dynamics and political consequences, but they also have over time influenced census politics by creating institutional incentives for including or avoiding particular racial categories or by advocating unique racial taxonomies. So for example, in the US, the Voting Rights Act has been highly consequential in how racial uh, categories and, and racial questions have appeared on the census. Um, and in, in Canada, the, the, the multicultural policy has been highly consequential for understandings of race and whether or not race appears on the census. So those are the types of racial projects I'm interested in. Um, the second, factor are institutional arrangements that help to structure the relationship between state and society. And these institutions help to shape the contours of decision-making power, right? Who gets a seat at the table? How do they articulate their interests? And what power do they have in doing so? And so I specifically look at, um, first of all, the centralization of authority, especially in terms of federalism and the horizontal organization of the statistical system. Um, so for example, in Canada, uh, there's one statistical agency that's responsible for the census. It's Statistics Canada. Uh, they collect all 
statistics in the federal system. Um, but in the U.S., that responsibility is spread across at least 70 different agencies. Um, the second institution uh, is the autonomy of statistical agencies to operate free of influence from above, meaning partisan politics, or below, meaning social movements or lobbies. And third is the protocols of census administration and the policy feedback effects um, of traditions of counting by race and how those um, work to influence um, the way policymakers craft questions and categories over time. Um, and so, you know, within those, within like the, the broad point of the book, I was, I'm, because I'm a theorist in disguise, I was always interested in like trying to think about why the state is acting the way it does, you know, like how do we characterize the operation of state power in census politics? And if I could go back again to, you know, my experience working for Indian Affairs, um, I was really, I was ready to find the sinister state. You know, I was, I, I started this research and I was ready to find the state creating racial categories in order to dominate and control. Um, because that was my experience working for Indian Affairs as part of the state that created particular categories that applied to indigenous people in order to dominate and control. I hope I don't, you know, I, I quit a long time ago, so hopefully that's not revealing any state secrets. But yeah, you know, that's what we did. Um, and so I was thinking about how does it, how does state power operate in census politics? And I, I came up with this construct of the schematic state in part because, um, you know, I was reading a lot of Jim Scott, as we all should. Um, and I was thinking about the ways that the census works to make the population legible. Um, and for me, the process of creating racially legible identities um, involves taking what is politically contested, you know, so race is this politically contested concept and taking that kind of fluidity and that messiness and creating these stable, identifiable categories that can then be used as a basis for law and policy. And in order to make race legible, state power, I argue, operates concurrently on two fronts, right? So first of all, the schematic state um, implies that the state is an actor that's responsible for putting the underlying organizational pattern of race into place. But as an underlying pattern, the schematic is like this plan that hasn't yet come to fruition, right? Race doesn't just exist in the realm of the state. It, it exists in lots of places in lots of ways, right? It's transnationally textured, it's socially practiced, it's individually performed. So the state can never really contain the meaning of race and it can't control its actualization. So even though the state might create this original prototype, sometimes the scheme unexpectedly, unpredictably goes awry. Um, secondly, if we think about the schematic state as an arena where policy alternatives are contested and where the state itself participates alongside other actors, it implicates or indicates that the state itself is not unified. The state is a field of power, it's a site of struggle, and there's a lot of different moving parts. Um, and so if we disaggregate the state, um, we can think about the ways that different agencies within the census policy sphere might have conflicting goals and agendas. We can think about the way that, uh, as Timothy Mitchell argues, the boundary that separates the state from society is actually a conceptual abstraction that helps to cement state power. And we can also think about the ways that race-making processes in the state are way more contradictory than they are coherent, right? But the idea of the state as a singular entity works to hide those contradictions. Um, and most importantly, the, the construct of the schematic state implicates the root word scheme. And here, I really wanted to suggest that at times the state is in fact duplicitous, and sometimes the state schemes. In creating racial schematics, the state determines normative spaces of acceptability and abnormality, right? Um, racial statistics might be really important. They are really important in the struggle for racial equality. But in creating these imperatives, the state then portrays itself as the defender of equality and justice and absolves itself of its responsibility for, put, for enabling a lot of those circumstances in the first place. Um, and the Tate 
the state also takes kind of comfort in its contradictory role of combating racism in some ways while actively supporting it in others. And third, I think, you know, for these contemporary times, these trying contemporary times, we always have to be aware that there's always the potential for the return of the sinister states um, that uses racial data to surveil, to manage, to control, to dominate. And that's, of course, one of the issues with regard to many people being skeptical about, you know, what are you doing with this information that I'm telling you? And, and how is it going to be used? I mean, I think that's also what you're talking about in terms of the schematic state um, is, you know, how do we think about giving over information about ourselves, not just being counted, I am here one person, um, but all the other components now that are embedded in the census documents and the sort of rubric. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you were just talking about as the race making that can be a contradictory process, which I found really fascinating in your discussion, because it does sort of operate on a number of levels in terms of the role of state power and the state, but also in this broader question of the sort of fluid, fluid racial definitions. Can you talk a little bit more about that sort of contradictory process, as you call it? Sure. So the thing that struck me in the, in the course of doing this research was the ways that, you know, the census promoted a particular racial schematic um, or a particular set of classification rules for determining who was and was not for example, black or white or, or Indian or whatever. And it and and that definition that was promoted by the census wasn't necessarily mirrored in other parts of the state, right? So a great example is um, in the early 20th century, Canada um, counted uh, Indians um, by tracing their ancestry through the, through the line of the mother. And that was really interesting for a couple of reasons. First, because um, the government counted all other groups uh, except for mixed race people uh, by tracing lineage through the father, um, but switched it up and traced lineage through the mother for Aboriginal people. Um, the more important reason why that's interesting is because according to Section 12.1B of the Indian Act, which is really infamous in Canada, um, Aboriginal women who married non-Aboriginal men would be expelled from Indian status, um, as would their children. Um, and often, you know, again, with these dire consequences for these women's livelihoods, and quality of life. And so it was entirely possible to have somebody who was considered an Indian according to the logic of the census, but who was not considered to be an Indian according to the Indian Act. And those two things, those two contradictory impulses existed at the same time in the same place, right? And so like the argument, the, the, the big argument I'm trying to make here is that like, if we, if we think about race as this like fixed entity, how do we explain those contradictions? How do we explain those contradicting classification rules? Um, and the answer is that, you know, race exists beyond the power of the state. The state's trying to put a container on, on, on our understandings of race, but it inevitably fails because it exists beyond um, what the state can do. And it exists, it, it's not just um, how an individual is seen per se, it's, Absolutely. you know, it's cultural, yeah. it's contextual, it's intellectual, it's all these other things that the census isn't going to tell us about. Um, exactly. That I, the census can't tell us about community acceptance, yeah. for example. Um, and that's, you know, again, I, I find um, now that you've sort of tipped your hat to being a theorist in disguise, um, that's... Or a long theorist. Um, I'll, I'll take you as one in disguise because I think that your discussion in the book is really interesting in terms of making a reader think about how we conceptualize a state, the United States, Canada, UK, or you know, you make reference to South Africa and so forth. How we conceptualize a state, and then how that actually concept is then made quantifiable and sort of palpable. Um, as you say, legible. Um, and the census is this mechanism that kind of does it. 
Um, and the way that you talk about it, I found really fascinating in terms of, yeah, that's actually interesting as we think about sort of how we understand the state. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about thinking about state power um, as it operates in census politics, as you, as you sort of note, you've talked some of that already, but you know, how do we characterize the state power? We've just had this lawsuit in the United States with regard to questions on the census, um, which goes to some of these questions of the state power. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so to go back to what I said earlier, um, I, you know, my, my training was, um, my PhD was actually my first degree in political science. And before that, my undergrads in public policy and my master's is in law. Uh, and while I was doing my master's, I discovered critical race theory and critical legal studies, um, which is, uh, you know, which are uh, bodies of literature, which really take great pains to point out the ways that state power has been used to to cement circumstances of racial inequality. So this is kind of what I mean by the sinister state, right? The, the, the state power that is wholly and completely designed to maintain racial inequality. Um, and I was very much persuaded by, by those um, accounts, um, especially because, I, as I said, I was working for, you know, I was part of the sinister state, as I consider it to be. Um, and when I went looking for the ways that state power operates in census politics, and what I found was, yeah, you know, sometimes the state does scheme. Sometimes the state is sinister. So, for example, census data have been used to uh, find and in turn U.S. citizens of Japanese descent during World War II. Um, you know, census data can be used for these nefarious purposes, but without census data on race, uh, we don't know the extent of racial inequality. We can't measure the extent of racial disadvantage. And so you can't, you have these two um, ways um, of, of arguing for, for, for kind of similar and, and different things. Like, so sometimes people make the case that we shouldn't count by race. And maybe that's because they believe we're all human and that race is a divisive concept and, uh, you know, of a bygone era and that we will never achieve the post-racial era if we don't stop counting by race in the census. Maybe, you know, but other people argue we shouldn't count by race because if we don't have good racial data, then we don't have to do anything. And you see that very clearly. You see that play out, um, for example, in France, where they, you know, there's been a push to collect racial data. The government definitely is probably is not going to do that. Um, and uh, critics say that the choice of not collecting racial statistics is a choice of ignorance. Right? France is actively choosing to not know. Right? Um, silence is has meaning. Um, so the choice of whether to count or not to count both have consequences. Um, and so, you know, in terms of state power, like I said, sometimes I found the, the state like choosing not to know. I found the circumstances where the state used racial data for um, nefarious purposes. But I also found circumstances where the state actively sought data in order to, for example, properly implement, implement uh, affirmative action or properly implement civil rights policies, right? And so, and these, these contradictory faces of the state, again, exist at the same time in the same space. Like I can talk about how the state uses racial data in order to um, try to address racial inequality. Meanwhile, like the, um, the, the use of the state, state power in criminal justice is inherently racist. Right. And so there has to be a way to kind of account for all of these different um, or as as Anne uh, Orloff has recently written. Right. The many hands of the state, the way that the, the state can be all of these things simultaneously. And I think, again, that goes to our sort of trying to understand and think about the state as a physical being. Um, versus the abstraction that we read about the state in Hobbesian or Lockean terms. Um, and I think that your your book goes far to sort of pointing out the way that 
you know, having categorization and having classification um, is how we translate that sometimes. And that the contradictions that it puts forward are also the sort of areas where there is this, you know, like, what is the role of the state? Um, you know, is it, is it supposed to be there to intern Japanese Americans or is it supposed to be there to, you know, sort of promote equality? Um, and that, you know, the census are all of the above. And it's sort of the census gives us this kind of concretized manner um, of thinking about it. And I think your book is really fascinating in that regard. Um, one final question um, before we sort of wrap up. You talk a lot and, and sort of the book is, is subtitled Race, Transnationalism, and the Politics of the Census. And I wanted to just ask you a final question about the idea of transnationalism in our understanding of the census. Um, so what is the role in terms of thinking about the census in a transnational manner um, beyond the case studies that you also note in the book? Sure. So I wanted to find um, a way to explain kind of like the, the why similar things were happening at around the same time Um in the census, which is this really domestic institution, right? The census is designed to measure um, or to, to quantify the population of a country, right? So, you know, the U.S. census doesn't care how many people are in Canada, right? It's a very, very domestic national um, instrument. Uh, and yet we see these similar things happen over time and in different places. And so, um I just drew from some literature in African-American studies, um, again, in critical race studies, um, to try to conceptualize the idea of race itself as transnational. And what I wanted to demonstrate was that race is activated on multiple planes and on these crisscrossing um, um, mechanisms of, of signification, right? So race is individual, it's performative, it's communal, it's fam it's familial, it's a lot of things. And one of the ways we can think about race alongside these other maybe more common ways of thinking about race is race is transnational. And I was trying to think about how our, our ideas about race and racial difference have evolved in part because of uh, events and circumstances that happen beyond the control of any one nation state, right? So the idea that race was a biological truth, which was, again, dominant from the 19th century, in the 19th century and the early 20th centuries, that wasn't just an American idea, right? That, um, ex that idea manifested in international epistemic communities of, of scientists, right, who were debating the nature of race and racial classification and were talking amongst themselves and conversing at conferences. Uh, and they, you know, and, and the idea of, of race as existing uh, kind of in the transnational realm uh, was important, uh, in particular after World War II, right, which was this international exogenous event that fundamentally changed our understandings of race, right? And it changed our understandings of race around the world, again, not just in the United States, right? And so I was trying to think about the ways that um, these uh, kind of the, these these moments, as I, as I term them, uh, have these um, influences that exist beyond the control of, of any one state. Um, and this is something that's really common in, in African-American studies and transnational and diaspora studies, right? Thinking not just about, in Paul Gilroy's formulation, the roots, like R-O-O-T-S, of racial ideas, but also the, the roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, like the ways in which ideas travel, right? And the ways in which they change as they travel um, and how those types of influences uh, can matter in domestic politics. And, you know, in exchange, how when things happen in domestic arenas, those also like, have influences that aren't bound by the nation, right? So the civil rights movement is a great example. Um, Canada and the, the CBC was broadcasting speeches um, of Dr. King 
long after American radio outlets had had boycotted him for his stance on the Vietnam War, right? Like these these domestic circumstances often have these transnational reverberations. And so in census politics, we see this play out because, at, so for example, in the 1960s and 70s, when Canadian and British policymakers are thinking about having a question on race in the census, they're looking to the United States. And British policymakers in particular were explicit and took kind of the, the race riots in the United States as a warning and essentially said, you know, we can't have a question on race uh, on the census because it's so divisive. Look what's happening in America. We have to be careful that we don't want that to happen here. So I was interested in, again, these like the ways in which policymakers are drawing lessons from one another, the ways in which the idea of race exists beyond national boundaries, and the reverberations of, of these, um, di- like what we commonly assume to be our domestic policies or events. And, and again, I think that this is a, an aspect of the census that nobody ever pays any attention to. Um, and I think that your book does an amazing job and it's an, it's a really, it's a joy to read. Um, but it's, it does an amazing job sort of unpeeling and unpacking so many aspects of this, this, as you say, domestic document, um, that has reverberations, not just globally, but also in terms of our understanding of who we are, um, as a people, as a state, um, as people within the state, obviously. Um, so Deborah, what are you looking, working on now? Oh man. Um, well, uh, so I'm actually working on, on two book projects right now. Um, the first is, uh, called tentatively the puzzling persistence of racial inequality in Canada. And this is a book that I'm co-authoring with Keith Banting of Queens university, who is just uh, a, a joy. You know, he's just a brilliant scholar of multiculturalism and immigration and the welfare state. And I'm so fortunate to be able to work with him. Um, so essentially in, in the book, we, so Canada is this interesting country um, in part because it's often seen as having this robust social model and as being an international leader in the development of multiculturalism um, but the country actually has significant levels of racial economic inequality. Um, and so what we were interested in is why is it that the policies uh, that have egalitarian undertones in the country, so the welfare state, immigration policy, multiculturalism, the Charter of Rights, why is it that these policies haven't done a better job at alleviating racial inequality? And we have this twofold argument. The first is that those key policy regimes were all created between the 1960s and the 1980s, um, and they largely failed to eradicate racial economic inequality, um, in part because that was never their purpose. You know, Canada is a multicultural country now, um, but they were all institutionalized during a time when Canada was not racially diverse at all. If you look at the 1981 census, which I know I just told you to be careful about, um, if you look at the 1981 census, Canada is 96% white. Um, and so the policies were created largely by and for a white electorate. Um, the real question then is why is it that those policies weren't retooled to address racial economic inequality when it became more prevalent as the country became more diverse in the, the late 80s and, and 1990s? And we argue that the frameworks and problem definitions that define the Canadian socioeconomic landscape weren't restructured because they each employed this more universalist, liberal conceptualization of how the various policy spheres should operate, right? So for example, race never really registers in welfare retrenchment or or expansion. Um, It doesn't frame debates around immigration policy, uh, which ends up being dominated by concerns about immigration integration, uh, sorry, immigrant integration rather than labor market discrimination. And it really doesn't factor into multiculturalism policy, um, which is centers on a politics of recognition that's defined in linguistic uh, and cultural terms rather than racial terms. Right. So in effect, race and racism are rendered as either incidental or antithetical to the operation of Canadian liberalism. 
So that's one of the books that we're working on. Um, the second book that I'm just working on uh, is a book that I'm really excited about. Um, it was inspired by my students. I teach a class called Black Lives Matter and the Struggle for American Democracy. Um, and the project explores the emergence and spread of Black Lives Matter around the globe by asking, you know, what is it about the circumstances that gave rise to Black Lives Matter in the United States is um, what's what is it that's exceptional or at the very least exceptionally American? So you can see I'm engaging in these same kind of concerns around transnationalism again. Um, and what I want to argue in the project is that the understated sociopolitical significance of Black Lives Matter is actually the ways in which it exposes the ideological limits of American exceptionalism. So in empirical terms, I'm looking at the emergence and mobilization of Black Lives Matter as a global movement. Um, I'm, in, uh, you know, again, I'm as always a comparativist, so I'm going to use focused comparison to examine different manifestations of the movement in the U.S. and Canada and Britain and, and France. Um, I'm also really interested in the institutional, political, and legal targets of Black Lives activism, uh, Black Lives Matter activism uh, in different places, right? Like what do mechanisms of police accountability in the U.S. have in common or how do they differ from those mechanisms elsewhere? Um, and in theoretical terms, I'm interested in, you know, again, theories of racial transnationalism, uh, but this time... Um, also in conjunction with the long tradition of Black internationalism uh, and putting those two kind of theoretical orientations in conversation with the seductive logic of American exceptionalism, right? And I think that um, I'm trying to think through the idea of American racial exceptionalism, which is that in a lot of places around the world, the U.S. is seen as being exceptionally racist, um, and so like, what I'm interested in is what that idea of America's racism does in other places like Canada, like Great Britain, like France, um, you know, countries that have these racist histories of their own and the countries which are still plagued by racial inequalities, but which rely on the existence of American racism to draw attention away from their own systems of racial domination. That sounds fascinating. Will you come on the New Books Network again and talk to me about that book once it's out? I absolutely will, but you're going to have to wait a little while because I have very small children who demand attention. I understand that as well. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to thank you, Deborah Thompson, for joining me today to talk about the schematic state, race, transnationalism, and the politics of the census, which was recently published in paperback by Cambridge University Press. Um, any suggestions on where someone can pick up a copy of your book? I think the the University of Cambridge Press website is is the, the best place to go. Okay. Um, and also support brick and mortar bookstores. Sure. And not Amazon. <laughs> Terrible legal practices. Um, thank you for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you about the schematic state. Thanks so much, Lily. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.